This week, we cast our minds back to 1951 in an effort to review the remake-inducing science fiction cinematic thriller titled The Thing from Another World. And upon viewing, we asked ourselves these three questions. Number one, who is the true director of this film and why is it so important? Number two, is this film actually terrifying? And finally, number three, what is the line between knowledge and fanaticism? Listeners, watch the skies for another review on Force Fed Cypher. Hey, welcome back to uh, Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is uh, Sean Culp, and along the way is my co-host. Uh, I am Chris Rupp, and Sean apparently is doing his best impression of the love child of William Shatner and Catherine Hepburn. I don't, I don't know what you're uh, talking about. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. I, what? Trying out the William Shatner doing a mid-Atlantic accent. <laughs> William Shatner. Watch the skies for another review. Oh, that would be great doing a whole review like that. It would be a very short one. (laughs) So as uh, Shatner Culp mentioned at the top of the show, we're discussing 1951's The Thing from Another World. Yeah, I'd never heard of this. I I always knew of The Thing and then the remake, but I didn't know it actually stemmed from this and a novella. Yes, which we will get to. Definitely. But first, synopsis time. Please, begin. So, when a scientific team at a remote outpost near the North Pole discovers a potential alien life form, an army unit is called to the outpost to assist in recovering any evidence of this visitor. However, when they find a creature frozen in a block of ice, they bring it back to the outpost only to accidentally defrost the creature. As the creature escapes and begins to wreak havoc, the scientists and the soldiers are torn between a duty to study the creature and a duty to protect the world. Man, if only they didn't defrost the steak. Oh my gosh. <laughs> or as they put it, a carrot. Yeah, <laughs> they would have never. pretty much what it is. <laughs> yeah, right? It's a carrot, a horrible carrot. It is a carrot. It is a, it is a carrot potato looking hulking of a thing. <laughs> All right, so more than likely, it's going to be a lot of people that our listeners aren't going to know. Yes. But. Gunsmoke. Yes. That's what I saw. Gun sm- <laughs> Lots of gun smoke people. Well, uh, uh, the prominent billing, at least from what I saw on the um, the DVD cover art, is that James Arness mm-hmm. stars as The Thing. And if you aren't familiar with James Arness, he starred as Marshall Matt Dillon on the legendary television show Gunsmoke for 20 years. And he played the character in multiple television shows following the end of the show's run. So he played the character over the course of something like... 50 years. Yeah. His last roles were that. Yeah. And Gunsmoke <laughs> is, you'll ask anybody, like, what are, what are, like, the top 10 legendary television shows ever? And Gunsmoke is always in that list. Uh, also in the cast, we have uh, Mr. Kenneth Toby as Captain Hendry. He actually continued working in films until 2005. Uh, we have uh, Miss Margaret Sheridan as Nikki Nicholson. And Solid. surprised to learn that she only starred in six films and then retired in the mid-60s. And she was so good in this film. And we're not going to get into the entirety of the cast, but rounding out at least the principal actors, we have uh, Robert Cornthwaite as Dr. Carrington, who not a lot of big film credits, but he starred in the original War of the Worlds film. And has a t- ton of television credits, including the original Batman show. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't exactly call this cast legendary because I don't, I can't see that they starred in anything that was 
well known <laughs> beyond this. And supposedly James Arness just hated working on this film because he hated being in costume and just thought it looked ridiculous. <laughs> Back in the day with the actor. Well, he was tall, though. He was something Super like 6'8", yeah. and he was the only person who probably looked convincingly enough to like, okay, you're big, go in the costume. You could be Monster Man. <laughs> God. I, back in the day when actors just like showed up drunk smoking cigarettes, ah, whatever, I'll just say the lines. I just feel like back in the 50s and 60s, if you didn't show up to work hungover, like you weren't working. Oh, yeah. They said John Wayne was always, they said filming for John Wayne, they had to do it before noon because after noon he would always be so wasted. I believe it. <laughs> like it was just pointless getting him on. So who is the director? You know, that's actually been a very interesting debate over this film since it's come out for almost. For 75 years, it's been yeah. a solid debate. So the the credited director of the film is a man by the name of uh, Christian Neby, mm -hmm. and it's produced by Howard Hawks, and that's also very prominent on the billing for this movie, a Howard Hawks production. And if you don't know who Howard Hawks is, he's probably most known for directing a lot of John Wayne classics such as Rio Bravo, El Dorado, which is probably more problematic than anything else these days, given how... James Kahn in, uh, impersonates an Asian man in that movie. Oh, yeah. It's, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> and also Rio Lobo, which is basically the same film as Rio Bravo, just with a different cast. Oh, yeah. I can't believe that. He was the guy that I just saw that film. Howard Hawks is a Maybe. list of film credits a mile long. Seriously, the dude was directing something like four or five movies a year. And of course, this was back when you could yeah. finish a movie in three months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At least in under three months, you could do it. <laughs> just show up and say the lines. That's all we need. Like, what about the sets? Ah, oh, forget those. We'll just use the same <laughs> sets in the next movie. That's right. Exactly. The boom mic's in this picture. We don't care. Let's just keep rolling. Keep well, rolling. But since Hawks served as a producer, there's been a lot of speculation that he took over, that he actually gave Neeby credit so Neeby could receive a membership in the Directors Guild. Yeah. They said he only paid like, what, five grand of the 50,000 owed yeah. for Neeby? Or if he was based, or if Neeby was basically the mouthpiece for Hawks, because mm -hmm. there's been a lot of speculation for that too, that he would set a lot of scenes, had a lot of story input and character notes, and Neeby was just like, "All right, I'm going to execute your vision." <laughs> Whatever you say, man. <laughs> he was the backseat driver. Well, Neeby didn't exactly to go on to have the type of career that Howard Hawks had, but. Uh, he would end up directing episodes of some legendary television shows like The Twilight Zone, yeah. The Rockford Files, Perry Mason, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Kojak. So Nibi, I mean, hey, he had a decent career in his own right, but I wouldn't, I would hesitate to say on the same level as Howard Hawks. No, not at all. <laughs> and, and even the cast has disagreed over oh, yeah. which one was the director of the film. Yeah, some of them would say he wasn't at all. It was Howard's. Because they did like a 1982 review and the cast was like, no, no, it was Neeby's film all along. So who knows? Well, Neeby has also said that it's one of the most ridiculous questions that he's yeah. that he was asked is who directed the film. Like, it's my film. My name's on it. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and I, I chalk it up to this was that Neeby was, you know, a student of Howard Hawks. So it makes sense that his film would be shot in a style that's similar to Howard Hawks. Yeah. And we've seen that before. Yeah, it's like Lots of Robert Zemeckis directing the same looking films as Steven Spielberg because guess what? He learned from Steven Spielberg. And you're going to see that. Some directors like, who is that guy that did that uh, Freddie Mercury film? 
Uh, Brian Singer? Yeah, that creepy guy. Yeah. Apparently, he directed the majority of that Bohemian Rhapsody, but then they fired him. Yeah, I think it was uh, else Dexter it. Fletcher who took over directing. Yeah, but they credited... Um, Brian Singer. Brian Singer. Yeah, because of, yeah. it's all how the um, how the Hollywood guilds work. Yeah, which is stupid. <laughs> but this might have been before all that. Well, I mean, the the rules were still very strict in Hollywood at the time. I mean, because during when this was made, there was the overriding production code called the Hayes Code. Hayes Code. Yeah, like H A Z E. No, H A Y S. It was H E Y S. Hayes. No, H. A Y S. So that, like Bale of Hay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It was actually named after Will H. Bays, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Directors Association of America, which is a super long title. <laughs> yeah, dude. Can you say that five times fast? Not doing that. Come on. <laughs> he created the code as a means of controlling a lot of scandal in Hollywood at the time, because uh, we were talking about it off air, because there was just a ton of things that were happening. There were unsolved murders of famous directors. There were uh, famous actors that were raping women just left and right. God. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people have also compared the Hayes Code to the actions that Major League Baseball took after the Black Sox scandal in 1919 when that team threw the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they super censored Hollywood. I wouldn't say censored. I think they were trying to make Hollywood this wholesome bastion of the entertainment world. Which I think they satisfied that because a lot of people look back at the 40s and 50s and 60s like la 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 everything's great you know and while their um, actors are just developing drug habits and beating the crap out of their wives yeah pretty much there was a lot of weird tenets of this code okay no profanity huh which i get that yeah. no nudity or allusion to a new nudity so you can have a woman behind a screen and silhouetting her breasts and all that mm. uh no drugs Okay. Uh, quote, no inference to any sexual perversion. Oh, my. Yeah, I don't get what that means. So they couldn't eat bananas on screen is what you're saying. In a seductive manner, probably. <laughs> uh, no sexual relationships between white and black people. Wow. Which, uh, again, very problematic. No, any, you could mention venereal diseases at all. Uh, you couldn't have any scenes of childbirth, which, again, I don't know why you would do have that, have that in any sort of Hollywood film. <laughs> that's disturbing on many levels couldn't have pictures of any children's sex organs which i feel like that goes without saying yeah you couldn't ridicule the clergy under the Hayes code the clergy yeah and you couldn't make fun of uh priests or religion or anything like that and also no willful offense of any nation race or creed wow which again you have two previous tenets in this code that violate that last one there. <laughs> Except unless it's already in the code. Yeah. Well, this was actually enforced and in place until I think like 1968, which if you think about it really wasn't that long ago. And was it only in the United States? Because I'm thinking about like Goldfinger. Yeah, it was only in the okay. United States. But I think that was the, the James Bond films were co-productions between America and um, the UK. So Okay. Yeah. So young teenage boys would go see them and be like, what is this? Well, yeah, the code was enforced until 1968, and that's when the film ratings came in. So G, PG, R. PG-13 uh, wasn't actually introduced until um, 1987, and the uh, film Red Dawn was actually the first film to get a PG-13 rating. Oh, okay. Okay. 
That's cool. I just got a nice little lesson. So a bit of background on the Hayes Code and sort of the, the rules that dominated every production at the time. I also feel like it's, it's appropriate to discuss some of the historical context leading up to the thing from another world. Okay. So 1951. So this movie's only four years removed from the Roswell incident. And UFO sightings were only just on the rise. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't stop it. Even the Air Force decided to get involved and start investigating those. And that's when, you know, the men in black are going around and investigating everything. See our previous episode on Men in Black and Men in Black International. <laughs> nice little plug there. There you go. Uh, this was only three years before the Army McCarthy hearings began on television, which uh, Joseph McCarthy was hunting down any sort of Communist. communist infiltrators at <laughs> he- all levels <laughs> of culture. If you even said commie or even comma, he would find you. Yeah, and, uh, let's just say he was butchered in those hearings because there's, yeah, Joseph McCarthy has now been viewed as like this this villain in American political history because he's just, he had a very questionable personal life. Yeah. He was also trying to build up his, his I, I guess, prestige, trying to gear up for a presidential run. Like, why would we want this dude as president? Yeah, that's that's prime time. And also, there's another dude in your party at the time by the name of Dwight Eisenhower. So, yeah, you're not going to beat Ike in any sort of race like that. Sorry, bub. Well, America had also uh, just entered the Korean conflict in the year prior. So there was a lot of swelling of pride in the military at the time this movie came out. And there's also, this wasn't that far removed from... You know, this fear of the atomic age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, World War II was still pretty close. Yeah, there was this growing tension regarding science and its place in the world and oh, yeah. this pace that technology was growing and evolving. Yes, I would say the big theme of this film is questions about science. When does science go too far? Because you just see it the whole time. It's that wrestling of the military. Should we kill it? No, we must study it. But what if it kills us? That's okay. It's so intelligent, it can kill us. You're a maniac. Well, yeah, Dr. Carrington is definitely a fanatic in this movie. Because he, I think he starts off just curious like anybody else is as to what they find. As any doctor would be, researcher. You see something new, particularly an alien. It's like, oh my God, this could make my career. I want to find out. But even after the thing has killed two of his colleagues, he still- And dogs. And dogs. They gloss over the dogs. They shot at it and realized it doesn't get injured from bullets. Yeah, and he's still all like, no, we need to save it and study it. We can learn from it. <laughs> but it takes our blood. Yeah. It sucks our blood out of our body. That's okay. We must learn more. I know. If it were me and it were my colleagues that were strung up and had their blood drained, I'd call the soldiers and be like, do you guys have flamethrowers or anything just literally that will kill a building to like go after this thing right toasted like leonardo dicaprio and once upon a time in hollywood which is amazing because they literally throw five gallons of kerosene onto the thing oh yeah burn up the entire cafeteria (laughs) they still don't kill it no they don't and the place is on fire Oh, my God. I didn't even see them put that out. No, no. They kind of cut. <laughs> There's like scenes where they just like cut to his side and then, oh, fire's done. So you mean five gallons of flaming kerosene doesn't kill it, and yet hooking up some electrical shock platform to wooden pallets, which, by the way, don't conduct electricity, to kill it? <laughs> and it's just this shriveled mass of like burnt corn husks. I know. But then you get that great line, there's a 
picture of Faria reporter man, and then the guy just faints. I think there were too many characters in this film to really kind of key in on one person that was yeah. like, yes, this is this is the hero. This is the person I'm going to root for in the movie. Yes, there were a lot. I would say a lot of the shots were all wide, and it, a lot of the times they had people talking over each other. So you really, it wasn't isolated as it is now. Nowadays with films, you get a lot of close-ups. You get the main person, the villain, the supporting, unsupporting. But this, it was everyone and anyone. Well, and then I feel like that's more of a result of it being a product of its time. Yes. Because this is a day and age where you had to churn out movies all the time. Yeah, and it wasn't as much as, I would say, artistic expression. They didn't have the technology to do close-ups like they did. It's a cheap film. So I'm oh, sure it definitely they, is a cheap film. I mean, just wanted James to, Arness is dressed in a Kara costume. <laughs> they just wanted to get it done. Like, get it out of there. Come on, just film it as fast as you can. Even the actors said it was difficult to um, do the scenes with talking over each other. Well, yeah, so and it's, sure. it's clear that I don't know if they didn't rehearse it or the blocking just wasn't what it should have been. But it, yeah, there were a lot of scenes where they were just talking over each other like one person would start and someone else started at the same time and just like oh no you go yeah right i'll, I'll finish my line in a bit it's okay <laughs> i see i kind of like that it's it was just so if this were like a student film yeah that'd be acceptable but these are <laughs> professional actors this is a hollywood at the time this was a major hollywood studio making yeah. a major motion picture and you have actors that are tripping over each other oh it was great it reminded it, it me of wouldn't theater. happen and wouldn't happen in this day and age. <laughs> no, they'd have like fifty-seven close-ups of guys like just hemming and hawing and dramatically. Well, twenty-five looking. years later, you have a film like The Godfather, and you don't have actors tripping over each other in those scenes. No, but that was also Francis Ford Coppola, not Chris Neeby. Don't make fun of him. <laughs> but I was thinking about that when uh, the guy comes—I don't even know his name—but Army Man comes into Antarctica and he sees the chick, and then he's like. Oh, you just leave a note on my chest. There was four or five people could wake up and see that. And she's like, oh, at least you read it, blah, blah, blah. But I do like Margaret Sheridan. It's so good. She's so good in this so movie. But, good. I, but her only purpose in this movie is to be the object of affection for Captain Hendry. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And that's all women were <laughs> in, in movies in the 50s. They were objects of men's affection. <laughs> or damsel in distress. Even her job is just... It's a non-job in this movie. She's All she does is take notes for Dr. Carrington. I know. When you have a computer that's literally the size of an, like a, of an RV, I know. just get a tape recorder, dude. Uh, but she does uh, give that good line where they're like, what do you do with vegetables? How do you feed them? And then she's like, you boil them, bake them. That was great. They asked the woman because they, they assume that she knows how to cook. Yeah, because none of them cook. Hey, Dame, get over here. Hey, you know how to cook. <laughs> yeah. What do you do with these? What do you do with this giant carrot? Yeah, yes, to the kitchen, and that was like her big thing, where she just everyone like, tells raid the kitchen, get the potato peelers. We're going after it. <laughs> it's a giant carrot on the loose. My question is, how could vegetation survive in the freezing Arctic winter? Well, that <laughs> watching this movie actually got me curious as to what sort of experiments they're running in a harsh climate like this yeah so i actually found a pretty uh good article it, it was a bit old from uh popsci.com so it's the the website version of popular science okay. and there's a lot of interesting experiments they're running down there right now one is there's a, a, a 280 foot icebreaker ship that's uh, kind of going through 
the Arctic Shelf, they're studying the winter habits of krill. If you don't know what krill is, it's pretty much the the food supply for every single ocean creature. I mean, whales eat it, penguins eat it, any sort of ocean-dwelling creature lives on krill, pretty much. Yeah, it's the stuff in Finding Nemo. Yeah. He's like, krill. Krill! Swim away! Mm-hmm. Yes! Hey, look, krill! <laughs> uh, there's also GPS and seismic equipment that's designed to monitor how the Earth is going to respond to the eventual melting of the western sheet of ice in Antarctica. Ooh. So yeah, a lot of uh, climate change studies happening in Antarctica. There's also an ongoing study to determine how microorganisms survive in the harsh climate on the ice continent because they're it go, the continent goes through these long periods of daylight and and darkness. Yeah. And also it's obviously negative 60 degrees the entire time. So yeah, it's 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 mind-boggling to think how a microorganism could survive down there. It's crazy. And finally, because, you know, want to leave it with a cute note here, uh, there is a study to uh, figure out the adaptations that penguins have had to go through over the past four, 45,000 years. Aww. Can't talk about Antarctica Aww. without mentioning the penguins. Aw, March of the Penguins. Uh, and Metallica. Played there in 2013. Yes, apparently Metallica is the only band that has played on all seven continents. That's nuts, man. I don't know if that's ego or if they just love fans. Eh, little column A, little column B. Probably. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Well, this is a, this is also another film that's based on a novel. Yeah. And once again, there are severe, severe differences between the source material and the final film product. Okay. So I actually had a chance to read the novella. Novella? Recently. It's called, uh, it's based off a novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. So for starters, the novel takes place in Antarctica and the film takes place in the North Pole. So they kind of flip-flop there. Okay. The military, actually not involved in the novel. No military. Oh, man. The thing is much different in the novel than in the film, obviously, We've talked about how the thing in from another world is this carrot-looking vegetable thing. <laughs> even they're guy. like, so we're running away from a carrot. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the novel, it's described as this like almost amorphous blob of a creature with three red glowing eyes that's able to shapeshift. Uh, there's significantly more characters in the novel. There's something like over 30 workers at this outpost in Antarctica. Okay. Granted, the movie was trying its best to get up to those numbers, but <laughs> I mean, the more characters you have, I mean, the less you start caring about because you don't have one to care about. Exactly. You almost you care, start caring for them by default. Yeah. Care about all of them. <laughs> They're on the screen. There's actually a full working farm in the novel. There's all these, all kinds of cattle and chickens and- On the poles? In Antarctica, apparently, they set up some type of like farm with greenhouses and all that. Oh, okay. I don't know how it works because it's a novella, but in the novella, they went and killed all of the cows. Oh. Yeah. It's, uh, hmm. They wanted that sweet, sweet there's, milk. <laughs> there's this portion in the novel when one of the characters comes back and he's all shell-shocked and everybody's like, what happened? Why do you, what's wrong with you? And then other characters like, well, we just went into the barn and killed all the cows. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. They want burgers for days. And actually, the um, the 1982 John Carpenter uh, film is actually more in line with the original novel than than the thing from Another World. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the idea of the outpost. The actually the idea of the outpost discovering the creature and the saucer via the magnetic disturbances is actually on par with the original novel. Okay. And because I 
had to go down this rabbit hole. The author, uh, Campbell Jr., he actually had some very problematic views. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> he described himself as loving the devil's advocate role okay. and often took the opposite side of many polarizing issues. Just to do it? Yeah, I feel I feel like he was doing this just because he loved stirring the pot so much. <laughs> He actually wrote an essay that supported the segregation of schools. Yeah, he was not he was not a good dude. <laughs> he was a notorious chain smoker. Like seriously, there is not a picture on the internet of him not smoking. Just always with the cigarette. Yeah. And he even wrote an essay literally a month after the Surgeon General mandated that warning labels had to be put on cigarette boxes. And he wrote an essay that said the, the connection between smoking and lung cancer was, quote, esoteric. Esoteric. Which I don't even know what that means. I can't believe it. He just loved his cigarettes. And and here's the kicker for me. He also showed an interest in Dianetics and wrote glowingly of L. Ron Hubbard, who is one of history's greatest monsters. <laughs> Be right. I'm looking at him holding some book. And he, he's, he's totally smoking. smoking. But it's like that old one where the cigarettes were on the sticks. Yeah, it's like one of those Audrey Hepburn breakfast at <laughs> Tiffany cigarettes. Mm, look at my cigarette. Mm. That's what he just seems to <laughs> I feel like that's how every person, that, that was like the smoking sound everybody made until like the 1960s. He's yes. hey, smoking. And then the Marlboro man came out and was like, this is how you smoke. <laughs> you get on your horse and you puff on that cigarette. But he's like, no, 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 cigarette in concert is esoteric. Mm, yeah. Well, and, and while we were talking leading up to recording today, I think, Sean, you had mentioned that you were you were a much bigger fan of the film than... I was. It sounded, it sounded like it was right in your wheelhouse. Oh, I just love it. I love the way people act in the 50s and 60s because modern films, I do have my crit criticism. Like throughout this film, I was wondering how they would create it today. And I'm like, dramatic whisper. There'd be tons of close-ups and scenes of actors being like, I'm so scared. It's right outside. It's right outside. And there'd just be a bunch of jump scares. Um, but this, it was all wide shot. You just have guys like the part on the plane where they're flying in. They're like, coffee, coffee, you want coffee? And they shake the reporter and the reporter's kind of the doofus. Hey, you want coffee, Jack? And then the guy's like, yeah, I guess I'll get some coffee. It was just, I like seeing those humanistic elements of like people interacting in scenes and they weren't all models. So you could kind of, they felt to me like real people. The dialogue was spoken as opposed to whispered throughout. And you know, while... The conveying of emotions weren't totally, you know. How could you? You left a note on my chest. I was so embarrassed. Just like a dame, leave <laughs> in the middle of the morning. Before <laughs> even making me breakfast. Gee, Sergeant, don't get angry at me. Ah, uh, woman, I'm so angry at you. Well, his tone hasn't really changed that much, but I understand. I, they, they, they acted with, when they spoke the words more rapidly, that's when they were angry. But I enjoy that stuff. Uh, it's kind of hokey, but it's silly. And I think films back in the day told a little bit better of a story. Like this, the themes were very prevalent. That It was moving. You got to learn. And the majority of the film felt like almost a debate. For more so of it, it wasn't so... It, the monster was a part of it. But more so, it was like how they were going to react to the monster. Take it out, the debate. Should we do it? Shouldn't we? And I feel like that stuff in modern films is kind of lost. You, it you is miss kind of lost because debate. now that concept feels dated. I mean, yeah. why are you going to have a high school debate while the school's on fire? 
Right. Like, there's a bigger issue than you two trying to have a pissing contest here. But which is what it was. Yeah, but modern life, I think in, in reality, we do have these debates still when we handle different issues, and I think. Unfortunately, maybe it's just films don't think people have the attention span to deal with that, like conversing. But I, I loved it. I, I gobbled it all up. Well, if we were able to properly talk out our differences, I mean, we wouldn't have a two-party system right now either. <laughs> Whoa! Force-fed sci-fi's hot take. of hot take with politics with Christopher Robin. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to piggyback off of what you were saying about the pacing, to me, I felt like there was a lot that just didn't happen in the film they went a good long while of just talking mm-hmm. like oh we got to do this with the creature mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden dr carrington shows up and is like look what i've been growing mm-hmm. i've been growing more of the creature <laughs> i know and then they see can i can't believe it man you know what you're doing here of course i know what i'm doing i'm creating life we must study these creatures but man it's like, dude, haven't you seen what just one of those things can do? But it was great because he saw it. He wanted to destroy it, but the scientist said no. Talk to your superior officer. He contacted the armed forces. They said don't kill it. So it went through the cycle of like how things happen in real life, whereas a remake of this would be like, no, we're going to burn it. And then like a giant CGI explosion scene. It would just be all this crap happening. Well, in the remakes, they are on their own. They don't have any oversight. They're, they're yeah. cut off from radio communication. It's just them at this outpost. So they have to make these decisions on their own. Stakes are high, man. Exactly. Gotta take it out or be taken out. Well, speaking of taking out, did you have a red shirt? Did I have a red shirt? Yes. The dogs. And then the poor chaps in the uh, greenhouse. Yeah, this another movie where we got a dead dog. Even in the 50s, man. But it was kind of funny. You you just see, so they walk in because the, the thing gets melted in ice from this moron soldier that throws, I don't like looking at it. He throws a blanket over the ice, an electric blanket, and melts it. So then they run. Yeah, in. idiots galore in this movie. Oh, my God. He's like, I shot at it, but it couldn't. It, it kept coming. And so then they go to find the creature. It's outside, and they peer through the window, and you just see the shadow of this guy swinging around, hopefully He's going all Ike Turner on those dogs. (laughs) He's just like body slamming it on the ground. It's amazing. I started And then five minutes later, they they look in the compost bin, open it up, and this poor dog dog just comes tumbling out all dead. I know. And then Dr. Carrington is like, hmm, well, the creature will be back this way. You two, stay here and guard this greenhouse. (laughs) They leave, and they come back the next morning, and the two people he's left in there all strung up with their blood drained. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet they have no no qualms about showing the corpse of a dead dog, and yet won't show the corpse of two blood-drained bodies. Right. They probably didn't know how to do it. How can we do this? We can barely make a man into I guess a that wasn't in character. the Hays Code. You can't, you, can, you can't show violence to people, but you can show violence you to animals. Dogs. You can beat the crap out of dogs and get away with it he, back then. He was going ham. We, I, if we could find a clip and put this on the website, you have to see it. He's just ragdolling that yeah, thing. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just my go-to. I mean, if there's any sort of animal death in a movie, that's my red shirt because- like, Oh, I especially, especially dogs. It's like, come on. I thought you were going to go with it. That's my go-to for murdering animals. Just ragged up. No! You've heard me talk about how much I love animals. No. What's wrong with you? Did you like...
cow and when they escape he just runs away uh from he the dog's weird noises <laughs> and they walk up to the dogs and they find this rubber arm limb there ah, i must have bitten off his arm but you see clearly him swinging at the dogs with both arms i love the 50s man <laughs> it's so great yeah we're you know you know, your derogatory attitudes towards women and idiotness was just okay. Dude, they even said in the film, like, they called the lieutenant the wrong names. Even the female, they called her a different name. And the actress responds to the actor like, what the hell are you doing? But she was so good as an actress, she just went with it. Okay, yeah, my name is Mary now. Okay. <laughs> well, there's there's no shortage of lens flares that we could pick for this movie, Sean. Oh, I know. But what did you pick? Oh, the fire. That that chaotic fire when they tried to dump kerosene on that thing. The whole room is up in flames. And I'm watching this like, this kind of seems a little out of control. Are these actors, do they know how to stop this? Well, that's only one of those things back then you could only do once. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, And you had to get it right. And you could see the different, like the flames on the guy, like lessen more and more. I mean, I was like, man, this is growing. This they is- throw five gallons of kerosene on that poor guy. He's catching. They used a, a, a smaller person for him because you get to see, if you see the pictures, you see the actual actor, he's giant, and then a dude that's his stunt double that might be like 5'5". Five, five. The, the height is so, mm-hmm. like, it's stark. You can't even... Again, there's no shortage, though, because there's the military, despite all of their, like, oh, we're going to help out here. They actually caused the most trouble of anybody oh. there. <laughs> they they put the thermite on the ice that melts it, and the, the, the spacecraft is now lost forever. And then that, that idiot, when he's guarding the thing, the block of ice, yeah. he puts an electric blanket on it. Because he doesn't want to see it. They told him it was an electric blanket. He knew its one job is to warm up. What exactly did he think was going to happen? You have to be in the military to know. I've been through briefings where they're like, don't do this. And then literally two seconds later, the guy does. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Do you not listen? Evidently not. No, people don't. But that that was just perfect. Perfect casting. But my lens flare, though, actually has to be a civilian. In the movie. And it's the stupid journalist that tags along the whole time. <laughs> He's the one-liner man. The one-liner maniac. The whole film. For starters, in reality, there's no way this journalist would be allowed to hang out with this unit while they're on this mission. Absolutely not. It would not happen. Any journalist that's in like anything that could be potentially dangerous like this, they have literally 80 pounds of you know body armor on them. They they might not even be anywhere near a combat zone, but something like this, yeah. where a journalist doesn't have to be there, is not going to be there. Yeah, well, especially for a suspected uh, extraterrestrial. <laughs> yeah, just come along, Jim. Yeah, Let's just go, come yeah. along. And he the whole time he's talking about, I want to get a picture. I want to get a picture. And they even ask him, like, oh, did you get a picture? Oh, no, I was falling backwards, so it was kind of blurry. <laughs> Probably you, my foot. You suck at the one reason that you're up here. He sucks at his job. You you basically admit throughout the film that you are useless. <laughs> he is. There is no reason for you to be here. And then when the guy's getting zap, zap, zap at the end, he faints. How do you get they would have picture? left him back at the base they came from to sit and stew for a couple of days. And then when they get back, he's going to get a secondhand account of what happened. I know. 
I was really, I thought he was going to get eaten, but then I remember it's a 50s film, so it's totally, it's not a modern. Wish he had gotten eaten. Because modern films would have eaten him. I thought the female was going to get eaten, too. Yeah, normally in a movie like this, you have a female there. I mean, she's going to get eaten. I mean, but no, they no. Uh, pretty much everyone survived. Except they had just a ton of red shirts. Except the red. dogs and the two scientists who were poor yeah. enough to be trapped in the greenhouse. Yeah, but everyone kind of survived. So it was definitely a different take. A modern film, everyone would have died. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Slowly getting picked off one by one. So. Let's discuss the legacy of the thing from another world, shall we? Sure. So in 1951, so obviously not a big banner year for films, it, it grossed just under $2 million, which comes to just over $18 million in 2019 money. Okay. And this is actually the highest grossing science fiction film of that year. Hey! It even beat out uh, the classic The Day the Earth Stood Still. Really? Yeah. Huh. Bit bit surprising there. That is. Currently holds an 88% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so take for that what you will. Time Magazine has called it the greatest sci-fi film of the 1950s. And in 2001, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Hey, it's in it forever. However, I don't feel like it's quite deserving of said honor. No? No. Oh, I do. Okay, now that was that answers my follow-up question. <laughs> yep. This was actually remade twice with the aforementioned John Carpenter film in 1981, and I guess technically in 2011 with the prequel slash reboot. I mean, the prequel has the same picture as the 82. It's like it's literally essentially the, the same. same film, just in a different different camp is yeah. all it is. <laughs> it is. I mean, and it's, it's an okay movie. By no means is that as good as the John Carpenter film. They don't have a Snake Bliskin or whatever the heck his name is. His name is Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Yeah, in it, right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he's basically like Also Snake. the star of the legendary Backdraft, which you haven't seen yet. Backdraft? No, not yet. <laughs> Every time I hear that word, for some reason to me it means flatulence. So I'm just That's like not what it is. So I totally just picture a film where Kurt Russell's just farting the whole time, farting and starting fires. He's like, he's like trying to go on dates with women, but he just can't get over his flatulence. So Are you sure this bad... isn't a Jack Black film you're mixing it up with? <laughs> I guess, but it just yeah. So anyway, with all of that in mind, Sean, what do you say we rate this? Shall we? Sure. So on our unique rating scale on the Force Fed Sci Fi Podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own. And would host a viewing party. What do you give to 1951's The Thing from Another World? Oh, I'd own this, for sure. Okay. This is solid. For- okay, so this is right in your wheelhouse. So what's what's holding it back from being from hosting a viewing party for you? Oh, well, I wouldn't ask my friends. This is kind of like a, a secret passion. But I wouldn't expose my family to this and make them all go <laughs> and watch it with me while I geek out over kind of cheesy. I mean, this is kind of... Eh. I like it though. I, I this is this is up my wheelhouse. It's not a perfect film, so that's why I will withhold my viewing parties because mm. I'd be the only one going to that. But it's got you know, like I said, big wide pans, great dialogue for me, super cheesy action. It's everything I could ever want. <laughs> maybe, maybe I would host a small viewing party for my fellow hipsters. A Bring close your- group of people who would understand your love. Yeah, they'd probably all be gingers too. Aha! Bring the carrot tops with the, yeah, you know, because it's a carrot. Is that there. supposed to be a dig at me or? Oh like, yeah, you are. Not a ginger. <laughs> Just have a red beard because of jeans. How about you? 
to be honest, I don't feel like this film is able to stand on its own merit. I mean, it's often overshadowed by films that succeeded it, like War of the Worlds or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well as the 1982 remake. Um, while it offers some thrills, I would argue that the source material offers more dread and doom than this film does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in many of the aspects regarding the characters feel outdated when viewing it through today's lens, but I understand it's a product of the times, mm -hmm. but this isn't a Humphrey Bogart type film where it beats those tropes, you know, over its audience head. Right. And because of that, I would call this a, just a simple wood watch. Wood watch. It is a good, not great film, but it's important to watch films like this and to know them when you're talking about the old school science fiction films. Oh, yeah. You have to understand where we came from to know how we got to where we are now. Heck yeah. All right. I, I, I thought that you were going to say you would not watch. So the fact that you would watch this, that's pretty good. It's probably my most honest review I've given for any film we've watched. It's <laughs> <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah. It, this is just a wood watch. If I saw it, we're on like 20 minutes and I'm like, okay, I, I could kill an afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So- our next, we actually have another special treat for our listeners. Bum, bum, bum. So with the impending release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, we will be bringing you our take on Star Wars The Force Awakens, Ooh. following up with The Last Jedi, and then we will be presenting our take on The Rise of Skywalker. Mm -hmm. so or maybe the fall of... Skywalker. It's called the Rise of Skywalker, so I don't, I don't think there's <laughs> gonna maybe the fall of the Star Wars franchise. <laughs> well, we'll see. Remains to be seen. So that'll be our next uh, round of episodes. If you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all at force-fed sci-fi you can check out and download episodes at apple podcasts google podcasts spotify the iHeartRadio app or wherever you find podcasts and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode finally you can check out our website forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media so for all of us at the force-fed sci-fi team we will see you next time Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.